0: Please remain standing and turn in your Bibles to this morning's text, which is taken from Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Paul's instructions to the church at Ephesus on the issue of spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. and having done all to stand. Please be seated. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word, the privilege to gather around it, to read into it, and to see what you would have to say to us. Bless us today that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear new things from your word. We pray that you would encourage us where we need it, rebuke us where we need it, that you would calm our hearts where we need to be calm, that you would stir us up where we need to be stirred up. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wish I had time to tell you the whole story of an extraordinary American, Roy Benavides, who, um, I haven't even gotten started yet, I'm getting emotional, that's bad. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, but this man was born in, and raised in southern Texas. He was of Mexican and Yaqui Indian ancestry. His parents passed away when he was very young, and he was compelled to drop out of high school because of family financial hardship. He went into the uh, Texas Army National Guard, and then from there, he went on into the 82nd Airborne Division and always one to, uh, to push himself. He uh, went through the assessment for and passed the uh, selection and the assessment for U.S. Army Special Forces, and he became a Green Beret. His first tour of duty was cut short when he stepped on a landmine And his next conscious memory was in a military hospital where he was told that he was paralyzed from the waist down and that he would um, never walk again. He forced himself to walk again, and he was able to run again. And in time, he was able to meet the fitness standard of an army paratrooper, and he was allowed to rejoin his special forces group. Now, if we pause the story here, we already have, if I were to give you more details of it, a very inspiring story of perseverance and of overcoming. But what uh, happened um, 50 years ago this month on uh, May 2nd, 1968, borders on the superhuman, uh, Sergeant um, Benavides was uh, monitoring a radio when he heard a distress call from a special forces team that had come under enemy fire by a vastly numerically superior enemy force. He boarded the first helicopter that was outbound to uh, rescue this team, to extract them and to bring them back to the base camp. And he took his medical bag with him. He didn't even pause to take a rifle with him. And as soon as the helicopter landed, He began to, uh, he, he ran over to the team to see what the condition was. Some of the men were wounded. There were some dead. And he began a relay of moving dead and wounded to the helicopter in an effort to try to get everybody out of there as quickly as possible. As quickly as possible ended up being an ordeal that lasted six hours because the, uh, he needed the helicopter to relocate where it'd be a little bit easier to get more people on board and to get them out of there faster. In the process, the helicopter was shot down. And so now his problems had compounded exponentially and now he had to get uh, wounded soldiers off of that helicopter. He set them up in the best defensive perimeter that he could manage at the time. And he began multitasking. He began giving first aid to the wounded. He began uh, taking charge of the distribution of what water and ammunition the men had on hand. And he uh, began calling in airstrikes to, uh, to hold off the enemy. In the process, two enemy soldiers attacked the helicopter from behind where the door gunners couldn't reach them. And he dispatched those two enemy soldiers One of them got close enough to club him in the back of the head with his rifle and uh, after a brief moment in hand-to-hand combat, uh, Benavidez dispatched that soldier as well and then he resumed his uh, routine of uh, moving people onto a second helicopter that had come in and once he was certain that everybody was on board and that everybody was accounted for and everything of importance was accounted for. Only then did he board that helicopter and uh, and allow himself to be uh, uh, flown back to the base camp. Now, I'm gonna pause the story there because there's actually more to this story. And uh, I'll come back to that later on in the sermon. So as I like to say, your reward for staying awake in this sermon is you get to hear the end of the story of of a truly remarkable individual. But I mention this, this extraordinary man for two reasons. One is that tomorrow is, of course, Memorial Day and, and that those who have sacrificed, those who are sacrificing, uh, not only in the fighting, but in those who are sacrificing on the home front in the uh, separation of loved ones, are worthy of our remembrance. But also, because the uh, text of this morning has to do with spiritual warfare, I think it is helpful to have an illustration of extraordinary physical warfare to look at and to, and to use that to gauge the intensity of our spiritual warfare. Benavides did say later on that what motivated him to do what he did was not hatred for the enemy, it was love for his fellow soldier. And he was absolutely determined that... Uh, to, as much as it was within him, he was going to do everything he could to protect those men and to get as many alive as he could. As a result, uh, eight men survived who otherwise may not have. The text this morning directs us, of course, to the issue of spiritual warfare, where not just physical lives are at stake, but eternal human souls are at stake. And the context of this is interesting because as you first look at the context, you're going to think, now, now Paul, have you just wandered off topic? You know, if, uh, if this was an essay being submitted in high school somewhere, uh, you might have an English teacher that would say, well, this, this part just doesn't belong with what you were saying. It does. At the end of Ephesians 5, Paul is talking about the relationship between husband and wife. At the beginning of Ephesians six, Paul is talking about the relationship between parents and children. And just after that, he talks about the relationship between slave and master in a culture that already has slavery, a culture where the gospel is going in and is changing that culture. We would modernize that today to say uh, employee and boss. And then Paul talks about spiritual warfare. I think maybe you're beginning to see the connection. Sometimes the marriage relationship can be a spiritual battlefield. And sometimes the relationship between parents and children can be a spiritual battlefield. I would almost want to ask, when isn't it a spiritual battlefield? Uh, sometimes. Um, and I love my boys. Um, and, and, and then when we get into the issue of employee and, and employer that can be a spiritual battlefield. So Paul hasn't really wandered off topic. He's just shown us real quickly what the battlefields of our spiritual warfare are. We have prayed for the persecuted church that knows very intensely and very directly what spiritual warfare is all about, but you don't have to go far. Your battlefield is right where you are, right where I am, right now is a time in which we are engaged in spiritual warfare. And We are at a point now where as a church, as believers in Christ, we are called upon to fight. Our time of rest is coming, but it's not here. It's not here in this world. And while we're here, we need to fight. And in the meantime, we have been properly and fully equipped with all that we need. Notice where Paul directs us for strength in verse 10. This is redundant and it's emphatic uh, in, in its repetition. Paul says, be strong. And this is is interesting in the Greek. It, It really has the idea of be made strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And so you see that this business of spiritual warfare has to do with being supernaturally endowed. It's not because You can pray with more intensity than another person. It's not because you pray more eloquently than another person. What makes our prayers effective is that God supernaturally endows us and works through us in in our prayers. In verse 11, we're told to put on the whole armor. This is one word in Greek. It's two words in English, but to put on the whole armor of God. And the the, the point is, is that no part is to be left off. So uh, just a little bit further down in verses 14 through 17, you have the the armor of God and the the defensive armor and the offensive weaponry involved in spiritual warfare. And Paul says, take up all of it because you need all of it. And also it is that we might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Uh, Some versions translate that, the schemes of the devil. The Greek actually indicates the methods of the devil. It's it's that, that Greek root word from which we get method. And so the, uh, the devil is just one of our enemies. But we also know from Scripture that we have a world that is arrayed against God. Now, It is a world that was created and called into existence by God, and it is a world that still retains some of the beauty and some of the majesty of creation, reminders of his his, uh, presence, uh, reminders of his power, even uh, still in this fallen order of things, there are elements of God's beauty and his creativity that are reflected in, in different cultures around the world. But this is also a fallen world, and it is a world that at points and times and places is very, very hostile to its own creator. And then we have ourselves to deal with. You'll remember Paul in Romans chapter 7 saying, I know what to do and I don't do it. And I know what I'm not supposed to do and I do it anyway. And I think you and I find that to be a very familiar story. So we have uh, not just one enemy, but actually three. We have The enemy himself, the very name Satan means enemy. We have the world and we have our own selves to overcome. This is why we need the whole armor of God and this is why we need to depend on the Lord's strength and on the Lord's provision. Verse 12, to summarize, makes clear that our battle is spiritual. It is not physical. So every election year, When somebody emerges in public office, uh, it may be somebody you like, it may be somebody you don't like. That person is not your enemy. That person who makes a point or a hobby or, or even a profession out of opposing the word of God is not the enemy. Uh, Directly speaking, the enemy is spiritual, and these are people who are outside of Christ, who are being used, whether they know it or not, by the ultimate enemy of the gospel, Satan himself, and it is for their souls, too, that we pray. And then in verse 13, again, we are admonished, if we haven't learned already, that we need to take on the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand Now, I want to briefly touch on the verses that follow, because as you look through this, we have five defensive items and one offensive item. There are times when this passage is preached on, there's a a temptation to uh, delve deeply into the Roman soldier, the Roman soldier's training, the armor that he wore, Roman tactics, and so on. That's not what Paul is getting at. What Paul is getting at is how we're equipped for, for spiritual warfare. He talks about the sword of the spirit. I think if he wrote this today, he would say the assault rifle of the spirit. Uh, and I'm not trying to be humorous there. I think he would make, make a point that we have defensive weaponry, we have offensive weaponry. And as we take a look through this, notice that we have, for our protection, the truth. And then we have, for our protection, righteousness we are covered in the righteousness of Christ verse 15 is interesting because the theme is warfare and he says your feet are covered with the gospel of peace and this is fascinating because we know the scripture that it is beautiful feet that bring the good news gospel means good news and so where we go where our feet take us is an opportunity a place to to proclaim that gospel in some way, to say something of God to somebody in some way, whether a complete stranger as God gives opportunity, but we need to be looking for those opportunities. I remember telling some of my New Testament students as we were going over and comparing Paul's missionary journeys, we'd look at the first one, the second one, the third one, his journey to Rome, and then it, it struck me, you know, if Paul went to McDonald's, that was a missionary journey. Uh, Paul didn't go anywhere that wasn't a missionary journey. And you'll see a little bit more about Paul uh, on the issue of spiritual warfare shortly. So wherever it is that we go, we, we take that gospel with us. We are also protected by faith. And that is the ability to trust God with the doubts and the questions that we can't quite yet answer but we will find answers if we would just dig deeper into the scriptures. I haven't found an objection to the faith yet that cannot be answered by the Bible and that probably hasn't already been asked by the saints in scripture. They had some of the same questions. Why do the wicked prosper? And uh, God, where are you when, when evil is prevailing? These are questions asked by the saints in the Bible uh, well ahead of any atheist that would bring these up as objections to the scriptures today. And the answers are there. And we just have to be diligent students of the word and look for them. We have salvation as a defensive item. And then finally, we have the one offensive item, which is the word of God, which I think is perhaps underrated. The I remember a fascinating comment by Charles Spurgeon, who, who made many fascinating comments, by the way. And uh, one of them was, is that, He said he he never dealt with unbelief, as he said, with the paper pellets of reason. Now, reason is important. Apologetics are important. But apart from the word of God, they are utterly powerless. You will not win somebody into heaven with superior reasoning, with superior logic, especially if the scriptures are true about the condition of the human heart, the willful rebellion against God. Give me the best argument, if I'm an unbeliever, I'm gonna find some way to object to that, some way to hold that off. But the word of God is sharp, and it cuts deeply to the soul and to the spirit, And I try to remember, as I I do admit every now and then, I do get entangled in online debates with, with unbelievers. And I try to remember to always throw in something of the scripture. They may scoff at it when they see it, but the word of God is effective. And he can bless that later, perhaps to their salvation. But the word of God is the primary means by which souls are converted. And you and I need to be adept at understanding and using this word just as a soldier needs to be adept, whether a Roman soldier with his sword or a modern soldier with his rifle. But the good news is that our victory is certain and that we have one who has gone before us and secured that victory for us. Now, I want to return to uh, Sergeant Benavidez. When his helicopter returned to the base camp um, with dead and wounded on board, the uh, deceased soldiers were taken off of the aircraft, and Sergeant Benavidez was taken off of the aircraft and laid next to the dead soldiers. He had, eventually somebody counted, seven gunshot wounds, 28 puncture wounds from shrapnel. In hand-to-hand combat, he had been slashed, he had been stabbed, he had been clubbed, and he had significant loss of blood. He was actually being zipped up in a body bag, unable to talk and realizing what was going on. He simply spat in the face of the person who was trying to zip him up. And this man uh, was startled and called for a medic. And he said, "Benavides is still alive. Get a medic over here. Well, a medic came over and looked at him and said, well, he's not going to make it, but I'll do my best. Well, that medic did do his best, and Benavidez did receive that life-giving, that life-saving initial care. And after 11 months of hospitalization, he he often ended up in hospitals, it seems, um, he, he walked out. And uh, I wish I had time to tell you more, but eventually his action was recognized um, as worthy of uh, the Congressional Medal of Honor. And uh, years later, after the war, it was awarded to him by President Reagan. And uh, I, I think we, you see in is someone who gave his all, came very, very close to death, about as close as you can get without actually crossing that line. Um, and then came back from it. More than that, we have a Savior who took the penalty of God's wrath for your sin and mine. He did die a real physical death. He was buried for three days, assuring the fact that he was definitely dead. And yet he came back from the dead. Jesus said, I lay down my life when I want to. I take it up when I want to. No one takes it from me. He's the only one that could do that. The only... The only one in a human body that could lay down his life when he wanted to, take it up when he wanted to. And in the process, he has conquered sin and death. And so he tells his disciples that you will have trouble in the world. Yes, there will be warfare. There will be spiritual warfare in the world. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And because we are in Christ, our victory in spiritual warfare is as certain as his. Now, at the same time, we need to remember that while we believe in the sovereignty of God, we are not called to be spectators. You know how Presbyterians are. Hi, my name is Ed, God is sovereign. You know, and uh, that, that seems to be uh, our, our main thing. And it's a good one, it is, it is a, a good thing to remember. But let us not be ignorant of other passages of scripture that inform us that we're involved in this battle. In the book of Joshua, Joshua is told, Joshua, I have given you the city of Ai, now you go get it. In Acts chapter 18, Paul is told, Paul, I have many people in this corrupt city of Corinth and they're going to believe in me, I'm I'm adding a little bit here, Uh, but Paul, you need to go preach to them. And so he is calling us saying, yes, I am sovereign. Yes, you trust me. Yes, I am in control of everything, but I still have a work for you to do while you're here and while we are what the theologians call the church militant, the church at war. And then when we make the transition from here to heaven, we become the church triumphant. Pick up with me in Ephesians six eighteen, and you'll see what... Uh, what Paul is praying for here. Paul is emphasizing after he goes through the armor of God, he says this praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. He is talking about laboring in prayer. Verse 19 and 20 watch carefully what's going on here. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, Paul, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul is saying, I am a prisoner. I am shackled. I am scared. Will you pray for me that I, Paul, would be bold enough to minister the gospel to those around me? And so if Paul was in need of prayer, I uh, suggest that you and I are in need of prayer too. And so, uh, again, we need to be diligent, very diligent about this business of prayer. In bringing this to a conclusion, the uh, if, if you are not a believer, and I, I trust most of us are, if not all of us, but to the unbeliever, your spiritual warfare here is a losing warfare and it ends badly. The enemy of the faith will be cast into a lake of fire. So will his angels. So will all who follow him, knowingly or unknowingly. And your only hope is to trust in Christ. Do not trust in your own morality that you've constructed to make yourself feel good about yourself. Admit with the scriptures your need for a savior that you really are that bad. So am I. And you and I both are in need of a Savior. And so put your faith, put your trust in Him. For the believer, there is this. In Revelation 21 4, there is the promise that God will wipe away every tear, and whatever we suffer here physically will end in triumph and will be forgotten as the new order does away with the old order, and everything is restored and made better than it was at the beginning. In the meantime, I want to just mention a man who does not appear often in Scripture. In writing to the church at Colossae, Paul makes reference to a man named Epaphras, and he says that Epaphras is laboring fervently in prayer for you, members of the church in Colossae. I know that there are many here who do labor fervently in prayer, and I think and I'm including myself in this, there are also many of us that could labor more fervently in prayer. We've been equipped. The warfare is serious and God has called us to this work. Please pray with me. Lord, again, we just thank you for the provision that you have given us to perform the task to which you have called us. And we pray that you would stir up in us a greater desire to make that time to put aside those distractions, the thorns of the world and the cares of the world that entangle us and ensnare us and help us to be more diligent about seeking you, that we might see more of you. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.